Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We are to desire the pure milk of the word like a newborn baby, that we may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and the spiritual life through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have uh, have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Before we open our Bibles together this morning, let's bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful we have this opportunity to study your word, to fellowship around your word, to be reminded that we are to come to you in prayer, and that perhaps part of our prayer life should focus on praying for those things that are prayed for on our behalf in the scriptures. As we study this prayer of Paul's that comes at the end of this first section of Ephesians, Ephesians 1 through 3, and as we focus on the things that he prays for, we pray that God the Holy Spirit will use these things to mature us, to challenge us, to bring our focus back to where it should be in terms of our spiritual growth and our spiritual life. Father, we pray that as we study these things, we might be reminded that what Paul prays for for the Ephesian believers is just as important for us, that we should be praying for these same things, and this should be our life's purpose, is to grow to maturity as it is described in this passage. So, Father, we pray that you'd guide and direct our thinking this morning. In Christ's name, amen. I have entitled this message, God's, uh, or the spiritual challenge for us. There is a challenge for us in this prayer because of what the Apostle Paul is praying for the Ephesian believers. So I want you to think about this, that as we think and talk about what Paul is telling the Ephesians that he is praying for, that in many cases you need to substitute for them, me, or us. Because this prayer is just as important today, just as significant for us in our own spiritual life as it was for those Ephesian believers. Now, what I want to do today is sort of a flyover. I want to look at these uh, five verses here, six verses here. I want us to look at them and get an understanding of what exactly the Apostle Paul is praying for, how this is structured. We studied Bible study methods before, and part of Bible study methods is just observation, which is what a lot of uh, of what I am doing this morning is is just looking at how this is laid out to understand it a little better. So to begin, I want to just read through these verses. First of all, he says, for this reason, I bow my knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom, that is 
from the Father, not from Christ, from whom, i.e. the Father, the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now, what family is that? This is the church. That's what he's been talking about. The church. So the Father is focusing on the importance of the Father, and then he goes on to say, The content of that prayer, he says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the wit and length, and depth, and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, I can read some of your minds, because you've been around a while, and I can hear it already that you're saying, well, I wonder how he's going to handle that phrase, width, and length, and depth, and height. Because you've heard probably four or five different explanations of it. And this is probably one of the passages in Scripture about which much ink has been spilled, most of which has been somewhat erroneous. So when we get there, we'll have to understand this in light of the context. You know, people would pay attention to context a lot more. We wouldn't have problems. But anyway... That's part of the problem. So what I want to do to begin with is, is thinking about this, uh, this passage. Now, if you listen to Jim Meyer's message on Tuesday night of the conference, uh, one of the things that he emphasized for the believer, for all of us, is that critical to our spiritual growth and spiritual life is just practicing certain basic spiritual disciplines one of which is prayer. So we're going to learn a few things about prayer from this passage. A second thing is just reading the Bible, reading the Bible through. We have plans on the DBM website. We also, you can just uh, search on the Internet and find lots of different plans and structures. And as Jim points out, there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Now, we all know some of those chapters are just about that long, and others seem really, really long. And we wonder, how in the world am I going to read four or five chapters a day? Actually, you don't need to read quite that much uh, every day. It's interesting that when I've looked at this, that, that the way the average person reads, you know, some people are slower and some people are faster, but the way the average person reads, uh, to read through three to four chapters a day, and, that, and you can even take Saturday and Sunday off because uh, usually we, something happens and we miss something earlier in the week, and so we have to catch up on the weekend, so it's a good idea to have a couple of days off to to cover cover all your bases. But one of the comments he made a while back when he was doing this was that that even if you if you just read it out loud, uh, you can do it in in under ten minutes. I would say ten to twelve minutes, depending on the passage. And I discovered something. I've been reading through the ESV in my Lagos 
program, and I have Logos on my iPad, and I noticed that, and it's probably been there a while, but uh, I hadn't really been inclined to listen to it, but there's a little icon at the top of a speaker, and so I can tap that, and whatever is at the top of the page, whatever verse is at the top of the page, there's a that is what is immediately read by a human voice, not a computer voice, and reads it out loud as you go through the passage. And so I decided this week that I was going to uh, sit there and just hit that, and instead of reading, I would listen. But I'm reading what I'm listening to. Now, what's helpful about that? And I know you're not too different from me. Is you'll read something and you'll go, wait a minute, wait a minute. What 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 about? I I, I think that reminds me of something else. And so you stop and you get distracted. And you go read here, you read there, or you go back and you reread it two or three times to catch it. But what happens when you're listening to that voice out loud? It is it disciplines you to keep up with that voice and to go through it. And so I've done that. I did that Wednesday morning. No, I did that Thursday morning, Friday morning, and yesterday morning. Every time, and I'm set to read through the Bible in one year, excluding Saturdays and Sundays. And those three mornings was right around 10 to 11 minutes with listening to that voice, read those chapters out loud. Okay, so you probably spend more time surfing the Internet for no good reason at least that much every day. So it's not difficult for any of us to incorporate those 10 minutes into our, into our daily pattern. And, and then to go beyond just reading, as Jim said the other night, and to think about what we're reading, to meditate on it. But there's a structure to meditation. This isn't like in the mindless meditation of Eastern, uh, Eastern mysticism where you empty your mind of, of everything and, and then whatever... Uh, you, you never know what will flood into that vacuum once you've emptied your mind. But for the Christians, the idea of focusing, ruminating on what does this say? What does it mean? And there's a lot of different ways. I don't think anybody can really, uh, in our day and age, meditate on the Scripture if you don't have a pen and paper handy and just make notes or circle things. And so I'll give you a little bit of an idea here of the process that that I went through as I'm looking at this passage. First thing I do when I look at this is is I say, well, is this one sentence or two or three sentences? That's that six verses. That's that's a lot of of uh words to keep up with and a lot of things to focus on. And so what I'll, I'll do is I what's the main verb? Now, of course, I've got a little leg up on that because I can look at the Greek text and figure it out a lot easier than you can in the English. But the main verb is right here in verse 14, I bow my knees. So that's just the beginning of it. He, Paul says, I bow my knees. And this is a term that refers to submission to a God. This, the word that is used here is one that is frequently used. Sometimes uh, it's used of not bowing the knee to an idol or bowing the knee to God. It's a word that actually is only used about six or seven times in the New Testament. And he says, I bow my knees. So he's talking about his prayer uh, to what end is seen in... Let me, uh, 
hit the wrong button there. Okay. So we have, I bow my knee that he would grant you. So this gives us the content of his prayer. That in, in uh, many prayer passages, you have this kind of structure where you have in the Greek a word for, that's normally for purpose or result that it actually occurs three times in this passage, each with a different significance. But it will occur in passages related to prayer, introduce the content of the prayer. So starting in uh, verse 16, we start learning what it is that Paul is praying for the Ephesian believers. And I would suggest that if Paul, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, recorded this prayer for the Ephesian believers, that there's probably a pretty good chance that what he prayed for for the Ephesian believers is something you and I should be praying for for ourselves. Just a guess, but I think it's important enough that that should be what our prayer life focuses on and not so much. So often we go to prayer meetings and churches and we pray for all the people who are sick and all these other things. But this is where it really gets significant in in prayer, that he would grant you something. And the first thing that he is praying, that they would be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. But he doesn't stop there. You notice at the beginning of verse seven, 17, it says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Okay, so what's the relationship of this phrase or clause with the previous one? If you're reading it in English, it appears that he's praying for four or five different things like a grocery list. I'm praying for this, and then this, and then this, and then this, but that's not what he's doing. It, it, there's a, a more complex structure to this. So the first thing that he is saying is that he's praying that God would grant them strength through the Holy Spirit in their spiritual life with the result that Christ will dwell in their hearts through faith. Now, this is a really interesting word for dwelling. It is a word that was used of a, uh, of a Roman citizen, or in some cases, Roman soldiers, who went to areas where they established a colony. Now, establishing colonies and colonialism are nasty words in our uh, modern society. Seems to me that if God is using concepts like that, that they are not inherently evil. There are a lot of things in the world that are not inherently evil, but because they are badly practiced by fallen sinful men, they have been corrupted. But this is really interesting because what would happen in the ancient world is when uh, when a, one nation would conquer another nation, they would send colonists in there in order to live and stabilize this region after they have been defeated in war. And they would make their homes there, learn the local customs, and uh, assimilate. But this is a little different. We have, the Lord is not going to assimilate to our lives. He is going to get us to assimilate to him and adopt his customs. That also happened in the Roman Empire. A lot of these places, there are a number of uh, uh, cities that we have discovered gone through the ruins that 
uh, for example, in France, which was then called Gaul, that when the Romans came in, the local citizens went Roman. They became, they, they adopted all of the Roman culture and everything else. That didn't happen everywhere, but it happened a lot in the areas of, of France, uh, some areas in Switzerland, areas uh, north of Italy. So this idea of Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith is the idea of Christ is making his home in your life. Now, what does that mean? Christ is making his home in your life. We know that from the instant of salvation, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all indwell every single believer. But that's what happens at what we call phase one at the time we're justified, at the time that we are regenerate. This is one of the many things that God does for us is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit indwell us as church-age believers. But this is talking about uh, something in addition to that. This is talking about what is happening during the Christian life. So we're going to have to take some time to think about what that means that Christ is dwelling in our hearts uh, through faith. Another thing we should observe there is in the previous clause that Paul had prayed that they'd be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, and then in the next line with the result that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith, hearts is used in a, as a synonym for the inner man. So the idea of a heart is not that necessarily that organ that is pumping blood uh, through your body. It has nothing to do with uh, the circulatory system. There's one or two places where heart is actually used for the physical organ. It's used in uh, some of the Old Testament passages for someone who gets thrust through with a spear to their heart. But most of the time, it's talking about the center of a person's life. That is, what's going on in their soul, what is going on in their thinking. And so Christ is going to, uh, wants to dwell in our hearts, and then this is through faith. Well, we're going to have to discover how that works. What is that all about? And then the next statement is that you. And here's another use of the word that. It's the same word that's used in Greek where he says that he would grant you, but here it has a different significance. Here it's talking about introducing another uh, purpose, which gets interrupted by the phrase being rooted and grounded in love. And one of the things where it's helpful to know Greek grammar is that, that these are perfect participles. Now, the perfect tense means it's talking about something that's already happened. So he interrupts himself, as it were, that you, because you already have been rooted and grounded, that's the foundation that's laid at the beginning of your Christian life when you are saved. So he's reminding them of what they already have, that you, having already been rooted and grounded in love, key idea here talking about love, may be able to comprehend what is the width and length and depth and height of what? What's he describing here? He's describing something that has three dimensions. It's not just 
uh, width and length. It's width and depth and height and length, and it's three-dimensional. It's, it's a figure of speech, and he says that they're to, that they might comprehend. Now, that word is a word for understanding. It's a word for thinking, that they can comprehend what's the width and length and depth and height. And then he pauses. That's why you have that long dash there that's called an M dash. And he says, and then he repeats himself. He starts in verse 19 with the verb to know, which is picking up the thought of comprehend in the previous, in the previous verse, to know the love of Christ. So what they're comprehending in verse 18 is something that's described with these dimensions. And then he stops, and he goes back and he says, to know the love of Christ. So the dimensions are describing the love that Christ has for us, which is beyond anything that we can imagine. It's infinite, like every other attribute in the Godhead. Uh, It is without end. And we are, he says, to comprehend it. Well, we can never comprehend it exhaustively, but we can comprehend it to the degree it has been revealed to us in Scripture. So this is what he's doing. He's laying down a gauntlet, as it were, that the goal of our life is to advance as far as we can in this life in comprehending the love of Christ. We are to know the love of Christ, which uh, actually should be which which goes beyond knowledge. But the word for knowledge here is gnosis, and it's saying that it's not saying it's instead of knowledge. It's that the, that knowledge is going to take us somewhere. That this goes beyond simple facts and data. It's going to go into something that's more uh, more full, more expansive than anything that we can imagine. And then we have that word, that you, again, but this time it's not not the same. The last time it was introducing a, um, the second uh, request or the second purpose, and then verse 18 gives the result, uh, what is the width and depth, length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ. That's the result. That you, this is the final purpose, the ultimate goal is to be filled with all the fullness of God. Now that just gives us a little bit of, a, of an understanding and flyover, but you still look a little confused. So let me try to use a different diagram. First of all, let's look at this thing in its context. When we come to Chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. That first word is significant. He says, therefore, that means he's drawing a conclusion from what he has said before. There's not a hard and fast break here between chapter 3 and chapter 4, though the topic shifts. Starting in chapter 4, the focus is on our walk, the Christian way of life. And we have the walk that goes down to chapter 6, verse 9, the walk of the believer. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. 
This is the topical sentence for everything that's going to come in chapter 4, 5, and down to 6, 9, and 6, 10. talks about the warfare of the believer. But the therefore takes us to the point where this is a conclusion from what went on before. Well, we go back to the previous section that we're starting today, and that's in 3.14, and there Paul starts with saying, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, for what reason? Well, that's going to push us back. But it's not going to be found in 3, 1 to 13, which we've been studying for a couple of months, because as we saw there, that's a parenthesis. Paul goes off on a sidetrack to talk about the revelation of the mystery which was given to him for us. And if we carefully look at chapter 3, verse 1, that starts the same way 3.14 does. Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, and then he'll go off into this parenthetical thought. So in 3.14, he says, for this reason, he's now going to pick up where he left off in 3.1, and now he's going to carry that forward. So when he started in 3.1 and he said, for this reason, that takes us back to everything that Paul said back in 2.12 to 21. So you, we've got to put this in context. Well, what, how does 2.11 start? Because 2.11 is part of 2.12. How does that start? It starts with a Therefore. So that takes us back to what Paul says in the first 10 verses. And what does he say in, the, in, in those first 10 verses? What he says is that, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you Gentiles were dead in your trespasses and sins, but we Jews were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ, raised us together with him, and seated us together with him in the heavenlies. And how did that section end? Such a great verse. We are his craftsmanship, his workmanship, his work of art, his masterpiece in Christ Jesus. We, the church, Jew and Gentile, are this masterpiece that God has created in Christ Jesus. And these, uh, for the purpose of good works that we should walk in them. So using that phrase, walk in them, that foreshadows what he's going to do in chapter 4, 5, and 6. And then he says, Therefore, because we have been made alive together, raised together, seated together with him in the heavenlies, therefore remember what you once were. And so he describes what happened. The Gentiles were... uh, at enmity with the Jews, that they were completely separate. God had a different plan, but what happens is Christ comes and in verse 14 says, he is our peace, he has reconciled us to God. This is the basis then for understanding what is being said in chapter 3, 1 through 12 is a parenthesis, so the basis for understanding what he's going to pray for is the fact that that Christ reconciled Jew and Gentile together in one body so that the enmity, which came from the law, has been destroyed. So there's no basis for any kind of so-called racial antagonism between Jew and Gentile 
among Christians because the issue is no longer our ethnic background. The issue now is our new identity in Jesus Christ. And this whole concept of racism and race is really a modern development that comes after Immanuel Kant in the late 1700s. You don't have this kind of racism taking place prior to that in the uh, theos, basically theocentric worldview that dominates Western civilization. Sure, you had slavery, but it wasn't a race-based slavery. You didn't have this kind of, of ethnic antagonism uh, other than what? What was the one form of ethnic antagonism that you had through the Middle Ages and a little before? Christian anti-Semitism. Failure to understand basic ecclesiology, the Jew and Gentile were now united together in one person in Christ. So we have to say some things about this thing called racism. If you didn't get a chance to listen to some of the talks from the pastor's conference, uh, there are uh, three or four that dealt very well with these contemporary things that are going on today. We're shifting our worldview in this country. We're going beyond postmodernism. I don't know that they've got an exact name for it, but in some of the study that I've done, critical race theory, which is what Clay Ward uh, taught on on Thursday night, it was an outstanding talk, a very good introductory explanation to this, that critical race theory is, is really the next development, according to those who originated the idea, it's the next development in, from postmodernism. So we have to learn to, how do these people think that are calling, uh, that, that in fact there was one quote made by uh, a, a pastor who spoke uh, at, at uh in chapel at Fuller Seminary, and he said, raised the question, can white people even be saved? Just in that thinking, you put on those those critical race theory glasses, worldview glasses, and you look out there and you just see things, everything is shaded by, by race. And so, so can a white person e- even be saved? If you're confused by some of this, you're, you're not alone. There are a lot of people who are confused by this. And the bottom line is that those who buy into critical race theory that are thinking according to that system are redefining everything so that they have their own narrative. This is one of the things that develop in postmodernism. Postmodernism, it's not about the details. It's about just everybody needs to have their story, what they call the meta-narrative. That's their buzzword is always talking about, narratives. And so they've developed a narrative in critical race theory that everything gets determined by by race, and and so you have to look at everything through these race-colored glasses. Once you understand that, you'll understand why it is that, for example, we had somebody sent in a question at the conference, which I didn't see till it was almost over, so we never addressed it. I probably wouldn't have anyway. But the question and, and the comment that he made after his question was basically saying that we were all racist and contributing to the continued division of Christianity in this nation. But you have to understand how they've redefined racism. Racism is no longer 
when you take into account as a primary factor in your relationship with somebody is their race. And that, that determines everything. The way they're defining racism is anyone who now disagrees with our narrative. If you don't agree with our worldview and the story that we're telling now to interpret everything, if you don't agree with that, then you're a racist. So that being a racist really doesn't have anything to do with race anymore. It has to do with rejecting this new philosophy, this post-postmodern philosophy of, of critical race theory that also includes within it cultural Marxism and Greg Allen did a good talk on that on Monday and socialism and Dan Ingram did a great talk showing how uh, dealing with all the passages in the Bible that that are used by people to justify socialism and to say that socialism is found in the Bible. And if you study the verses in context and have an accurate hermeneutic, they they, they don't. You're just reading that into it because that's what you want to get out of it. So we're going to get into this passage, and we're going to have to go back to these basic concepts that are covered already in chapter 2 because it brings up the solution to what has developed as our race problem. And the solution comes as we understand this staircase to Christian maturity. And so, again, this goes back to understanding the structure here that it is not a list of one, two, three, four things that I'm praying for, but understanding their relationship with each other. So the first step in this stair step is that Paul prays to the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of your Bibles won't have of the Lord Jesus Christ in them, but they should have that. That's what's in the majority of manuscripts. And I think that in terms of the eternal evidence, this is important because it's going to take us back to what Paul has already said about the Lord Jesus Christ and his work back in chapter uh, 2, 11 and following. So Paul prays to the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ here. And so as we start to read this, we should ask the question, well, why is he praying and for what is he praying? Why has Paul stopped at this point? Well, one of the things that we see when we study the prayers of Paul when they're inserted within the, not at the beginning or at the end, but in the middle of his development, is that he uses his prayer to, prayers to transition his readers from what he has said already to what he's going to say, and the prayers relate to taking what he's already said to the next level in terms of understanding what he's about to say. And so he's praying that here that they will come to understand something that is significant because in chapter 4, he's going to talk about how we should live, how we should walk, and what should motivate us. And one of the problems in Christianity is you've got a lot of legalists who've come along down through the years, and they want to motivate everybody by guilt and fear, uh, being afraid that, that God's going to punish you and creating guilt because of your failures. Paul isn't motivating us by guilt and fear here. He's motivating us by the love of Christ and that we need to spend time thinking and learning about Christ's love for us 
because that's what should motivate us. The more we learn about the extent, the expansiveness of Christ's love, how, how vast it is and all that he has done for us, the more we should be asking our, ourselves the question, well, why am I living like this when God's done so much for me? That's pretty, uh, that's pretty ungrateful. Makes me an ingrate if I, if I live in disobedience and God has provided all this for me. Maybe I ought to, ought to respond in gratitude, not be so selfish. So, so this it focuses us on what, uh, what Paul is praying and why he's praying it. What he prays for is that the Father would use the Holy Spirit to strengthen them and strengthen us in our spiritual life. That's what he's praying for. That's the first step. That's the first part of the request. He is saying, uh, praise the Father to uh, that through the Holy Spirit, we might be strengthened in the inner man. Okay? But he goes on beyond that, and we need to ask the question, well, why does he want us to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit? What's the significance of that? And so the result of being strengthened by the Holy Spirit is what he says in the first part of verse 17. In 317a, he says, so that Christ would dwell within us. It's interesting, we'll look at this when we get uh, dig into it a little more deeply, is that in Colossians chapter 3.16, Paul says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And what are the results of that? They're the same results of being filled by means of the Spirit. So we're going to have to look at this and see how these different dimensions of the Christian life fit together. So that Christ is at home with us so that he is dwelling with us. This is a sanctification truth. So then we should ask, well, why does he want Christ to be at home in us? Why does he want Christ to dwell in our lives? And that's in the next purpose statement in Ephesians 3, 17b to 19a. He says, so that they can begin... We can't ever fully comprehend the love of Christ. We can only begin to. And we will go from this point until the time the Lord takes us home, whether through death or the rapture, learning and growing in our understanding of the love of Christ. And we'll take that with us as part of our capacity to enjoy God to heaven. And then we're going to spend the rest of eternity learning more and more and more about the love of Christ, and the grace of God. And what's our basis for that? Well, remember back in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, after Paul talked about the fact that we were made alive together with Christ, raised up together and made to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ, that for the purpose that in the ages to come, he might, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is going to be put on display. Well, not just as a museum, but I think we're going to go through that museum of grace and we're going to learn all kinds of things about God's love for us that we didn't quite realize when we were in this life. And we're going to continue for eternity 
because you have to go through eternity to understand something that has no boundaries, that's infinite. And we're always going to be learning more and more because as finite creatures, we'll never exhaustively understand the love of God. So this is just the beginning, and that's the challenge for us, so that we can begin to understand the immensity of Christ's love for us. So then we should ask, well, why does he want them to know the love of Christ? Why does he want us to know the love of Christ? And the answer to that is what comes uh, at the end. And I didn't fix the reference there, but that should be Ephesians 3.19b. Ultimate result is so that we might be spiritually mature, reflecting the love of Christ in their lives and for us to reflect the love of Christ in our lives. That's what he means, and we'll understand it more clearly when we get there. But when he uh, makes the statement that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, the way that's translated in the New King James, the King James, and a couple other versions, it makes it sound like we can, we can comprehend all of the fullness of God, but we can't. We're finite. And so that's not quite the nuance there. And the idea is really to, to pursue this till the day we die so that we can understand as much as we can in this life. You see, this is the progression that we have, uh, that we are on the path to maturity. So we have to, first of all, understand, look at point two, the role of God the Holy Spirit in strengthening us. That has to do with the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that we worship by means of the Spirit, we're to walk by means of the Spirit, we're to be filled by means of the Spirit, that when we are walking with the, in light of the Spirit, walking with the Spirit, that he strengthens us through the Word of God, not apart from the Word of God, but it's the Word of God that he uses in our spiritual life. And the result of that is that Christ makes his home in our life in terms of our sanctification. There's more of a, of a reality there as we are being conformed, as Paul puts it in Romans 8, 28 and 29, 30, we're being conformed to the image of Christ because our lives are all about Christ, folks. It's not about us. It's not about what we want. It's what God wants. It's not about our desires and our ambitions. It's about God's desires and, and his ambition for us in the body of Christ. And the result of that or the purpose at the next step is that we can begin to uh, comprehend the immensity of Christ's love for us. And we're just barely scratching the surface. Even the most mature of us are just barely scratching the surface. There is so much there for us to learn and comprehend. And the ultimate result is that so we can be spiritually mature and reflect the love of Christ towards us, what we have experienced from the grace of God in our lives, from our salvation to our spiritual life and all the ways in which God provides for us, so that we can reflect that to others so that they can observe in our life the impact of the love of Christ and the grace of God. And that is what sets the stage. So this is what we have to focus on. These are the, the, the elements that should be part of our prayers every day, that God would, 
would use the Holy Spirit to uh, mature us and to strengthen us in our spiritual life so that Christ will make his home in us. And then, then that we can comprehend the immensity of Christ's love for us and to the degree that we can reflect that in our lives towards others. That's what this passage is all about. But there is a lot here. There are a lot of details. There are a lot of things that need to be understood and put together in light of other parts of Scripture. So we'll come back uh, next week and begin to look at this and to come to understand uh, how this prayer fits into our understanding of what the Bible teaches about prayer and how this should impact us. And why is it talking about the Father? What's the significance of the mention of the Lord Jesus Christ? All, all of these things. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Our Father, we're thankful for this opportunity that we have to come together, to be here, to focus on your word, to be reminded that you have a purpose and a plan for our life. And it's not quite what we think about when we think about your plan and purpose. But this plan and purpose is all about the inner man. It's about our spiritual life, our spiritual growth, that, that you are working to uh, take that uh, carnal person that we were when we were saved, before, before we were saved, this newborn baby, and mature us to uh, make in us, in our character, the image of Christ that we may reflect him to the world around us. That we're not saved just so we can go to heaven, but we are saved so that we can glorify you, so that we can mature, so that we can reflect your love and your grace to a world that desperately needs it, to a world that is searching for meaning and happiness and significance in all the wrong places. And that, that we are the only ones who have a true answer to that which is truly troubling the world. So, Father, we pray that you would give us that focus, that vision to live our lives uh, truly as unto the Lord for that purpose. Father, we pray, too, that if any have been listening to this message that have never accepted the gospel, the good news is that Jesus Christ died for you so that he could freely give you eternal life. And that by believing in him, which incorporates his person and work, understanding that he is the God-man, the God and Savior, and Savior indicates that he died for us, that focusing on that is accepting the gift, believing that is accepting the gift of eternal life, to trust in Christ and Christ alone is our Savior. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things as we think about them today, this afternoon, talk about them maybe over, over lunch, and that you would, that God the Holy Spirit would really impress these truths upon our souls. In Christ's name, amen.